Um, Good so Lord. all of these things where you just find, I think, in songs that we like, why do we like songs? Because there's something in them. Often songs, lyrics, it's something that hooks into us, but sometimes it's a piece of melody. Mm. There's something in that that just hooks into our experience of being human, mm-hmm. the things that we're going through in our lives. I mean, you've been talking about meaningful music and well-being, mm. you know, the the songs that we put on when we want to feel good, the songs that we put on when we want to comfort ourselves because we feel bad. Yeah. Uh, I was running a joke for a while that I apparently only ever made a Spotify playlist when I was either annoyed or, <laughs> or feeling a little low. to Music Helps, a podcast with a purpose. So we're here today to chat about and explore all the joyful ways that people can use music to support their well-being. As a music practitioner, I don't have all the answers by any means to that uh, interesting idea of how powerful music can be, but I am really fascinated by it. And what a force for good and a catalyst for social change music can be. Uh, And so Music Helps, the podcast and our staff training program, uh, affords me absolutely numerous opportunities to meet amazing people, discover how they engage with music, and together build a person-centered approach to music and creative access. So this season on the podcast, we've got themes that we're talking about, and we've been discussing music and mental health, creative care planning, um, and ideas like the musical toolkit that we work with in our staff training. And today, my special guest and I are going to chat about the concept of meaningful music, which is very interpretable, and hopefully we'll dig deep into that. Today, um, the idea of meaningful music is very powerful for me because I have spent the morning listening to my childhood piano be tuned downstairs, uh, a little activity that is sadly long overdue, um, but there's something very exciting to me about the sound of a piano being tuned in much the same way that I find the sound of an orchestra tuning up extremely exciting and evocative so these are some meaningful musical experiences that I've had and continue to have hopefully and that idea of our instrument as well the uh, the steed so um, when I introduce our special guest we are we are both vocalists so our instrument is an internal one but also I know um, well we'll talk more about that shortly for me my um, aside from my wonderful piano my my external instrument is my beautiful guitar Betty who has been with me as a faithful steed for 20 years. So she's accompanied me on thousands of musical adventures over those two decades. And the idea of um, instruments and tools that are able to tease music out of our of our creative selves, how they, um, they sort of have their own soul in a way. And I feel like uh, even... Um, 
the AI versions of this, so interactions with Alexa and uh, similar sorts of protocols, I think there's something very beautiful and interesting about how we imbue meaning to these instruments and these tools when they come to music and when we're able to interact with something powerful in that way. So meaningful music might involve songs that are personal or have meaning to us. It might be the idea of songwriting, which is something that I always delight in exploring with our participants, particularly people living with a dementia. Uh, so I think our culture sometimes in our society, when they think of older people and music, sometimes think simply of reminiscence and the idea of looking back and, uh, you know, discovering those beautiful musics that meant something to us in our childhood and our teenage years, because, of course, that is tremendously powerful. But in the musical walkabouts practice, we are absolutely uh, just as interested in discovery and creation and the idea of making something musically meaningful. So that involves, you know, incredible uh, exploration and the idea of creative curiosity that we keep coming back to. So with that in mind, I'm very excited to introduce today's very special guest who we've been trying to we've been trying to get her on the pod for months so this is a coup for me <laughs> uh, but I'm really super delighted to introduce Janet Fisher who uh, is chief executive of live music now um, uh, an operatic soprano singer and folk violinist and rather than me tell people about you I would love to introduce you Janet and have you do that so Janet hi hi Nina thank you so much for having me you're so welcome it's absolutely delightful to have you so tell us a bit about yourself and what music means to you how music has played a, a probably massive role in your life and and what you know what you do to use it to support your well-being right well I think my stories of music started very young. Uh, my older brother is a violinist. Uh, I grew up in Canada, in Calgary, Alberta. Uh, and my older brother had lessons with a violin teacher named Igor. Cool. Uh, apparently, he was a little bit more interested in watching the fire trucks drive past out the, uh, the window of Igor's violin studio. Uh, so he swapped teachers to a, a wonderful woman named Vicky Kerlick, who I still remember very well. Uh, it was my first ever violin teacher, but apparently I begged to play the violin non-stop because I wanted to do whatever my big brother did uh, until they finally relented. Uh, and Vicky was a Suzuki teacher and I was given a cardboard pasta box, a macaroni box with a ruler attached to it and a stick because I couldn't be trusted to not <laughs> use an actual violin to probably beat my brother with at the time. Um, and I would go to Suzuki lessons and stand next to my brother, uh, like oh. a very cute little echo, uh, oh and learned God. how to play the violin. So yes, I started <laughs> violin at the age of two and a half by my own demands. Oh God. Uh, and music has throughout my whole life played a really important part of that. Uh, I grew up in the sort of traditional fiddle tradition in Canada. I'm also a classical violin player as well. Um, and actually... 
throughout my teenage years, uh, joined the professional touring wing of a band called the Calgary Fiddlers, uh, which was a professional band uh, and sort of youth development program. Uh, but the young people in it were all amateurs, but it meant that we toured the world. And so by the age of 18, I had done well over 600 performances cool. on five continents. Uh <gasps> quite a lot of time and learned quite a lot about those things. At the same time, I will say that I was also uh, in the youth choir, in the youth orchestra. I played flute. I played viola. Uh, I finally took up the piano at the age of 17. Uh, piano was definitely not my, uh, not my strong suit. Uh, <laughs> and then ultimately had to make a choice uh, for me was really about, you know, what, what was I going to do with my life? And that question came down to, do I go into corporate law or do I become a musician? And Whoa. if I become a musician, do I become a violinist uh, and go to Berlin and go to the Hochschule? Uh, or do I follow my interest in opera? And so a long discussion was had and I decided that I wanted to become an opera singer mm -hmm. uh, and that the place to do that was to come to the UK. So at mm. the age of 18, I went off and auditioned at all of the Royal Schools got a spot at the Royal Northern College of Music under the late Professor Barbara Botham, uh, and at the age of 19, turned up in Manchester uh, and have been here ever since. So. How did you make that decision between violin and and singing? That's huge. Well, I think if uh, for anybody who knows me, that's not too much of a decision. I'm a deeply dramatic person. Uh, <laughs> and so uh, so uh, I decided that actually I wanted to spend the rest of my career on the stage rather than in the pit. And that yeah. was fairly simple. Uh, <laughs> hilarious that I have now given up full-time professional performance. I still perform. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, yeah, swapped, swapped sides uh, sure. of the desk. But very much, yeah, I think it was a case of I really enjoyed the sort of the staging and the and the deeper levels of sort of understanding that came from also having to portray a role mm. uh, and from text. Uh, always very interested in text. I speak quite a few languages. Uh, really like stories and getting into them. Was always deeply interested in history and sort of anthropology. Yeah. And opera is a microcosm of the human condition. Uh, and and what is really the best and the worst of us uh, played out in uh, in three hours of music in which you as the lead soprano die four times a week. So. <laughs> sure. Oh, my gosh. And almost to, to think that uh, corporate law almost got you as well. <sighs> well, you know, I... I, I mean, I'm sure the few people would accuse me of being mercenary on occasion, um, <laughs> but uh, was always really interested in business. And so actually that's uh, that's a sort of a piece of why I ended up on the other side of mm. the table uh, after I graduated uh, from the Royal Northern, uh, having spent seven years uh, there. Uh, wow. Three, three music degrees in the end. I decided to do an MBA and so always split my career between business and music, mm -hmm. uh, really interested in sort of how things work and, and how you pull these things together. And increasingly over my career, became a lot more interested in social impact and really understanding how you could use music to create social impact. What a powerful vehicle it was and a dignity first approach to connecting with people. Mm. You know, nobody ever wants to be told they're isolated and lonely. Come to this musical session that we're running. Yeah. Uh, but actually, they're like, oh, you know, I really like Jimi Hendrix. And there's a Jimi Hendrix concert on at my local library. I might go to that. Yeah. Uh, oh, actually, I happened to meet some people there. That was really yeah. interesting. Mm. Now I made some friends. Right. You know, yeah. 
there's one thing that's, you know, creating spaces where people want to be in those spaces and be able to make connections with other people, um, but doing that in a way that actually feeds the soul of people and, mm. you know, prioritizes their dignity and and their interests and treats people like whole human beings. I think, you know, you said earlier in the introduction, I mean, around why, you know, we talk a lot about older people and, and sort of let's just reminisce rather than mm. thinking of, you know, the stage of our lives in which we might be coming closer to our, you know, our own mortality to death mm. is actually a stage of living. Yeah. It's not a stage of dying. No. It's a stage of creating things and still being alive and a vibrant, valuable part of your society and the society around you. So Absolutely. really became very interested in that. Uh, and then was also really interested in what I saw often was some really inept management <laughs> going on in the artistic sector, sure. uh, in the cultural sector. Uh, and uh, those people that know me well also know that I, I speak my truth very, very openly. Um, <laughs> and that I really wanted to see, well, you know, there's some obvious models of best practice. Some of that is happening in the cultural sector. There's a lot of it happening in the social impact world, mm. uh, in NGOs. There's a lot of it happening in tiny grassroots organizations being led by one person with a hugely committed and passionate round. There's also amazing best practice being led by enormous multinational law firms or mm. huge corporations that are doing incredible things. And, you know, even, even here and there in governments. And how do we look at those things and take all of those ideas, find out what's best from the commercial and the corporate sector, look at what's great in grassroots practice and social impact and in NGOs, um, from a view that's not just the Western, you know, Western European world, but actually around the world and who's really doing this amazing work. And, and how do we take all of those pieces together and really create something that feeds and nourishes the people it's there to serve, the people that work for it, and the society around it. And that doesn't have to mean that we don't earn profit. That doesn't have to mean that we only work with tiny groups of people. We can think about that at scale. And then also the other point in that whole piece of work that I you know, became really interested in was how do we take a cause-based approach to things? So, you know, it's really important for me as chief executive of Live Music Now that I'm part of a landscape of organizations and that you are part of that landscape of organizations mm -hmm. at Musical Walkabout. And we're looking at that and saying, how do we collectively work together to buoy each other up, do great practice, share what's working, share what's not working? Mm. Uh, and how do we help each other out and look at that and go, okay, there's an enormous need for this work. There's an enormous need uh, for everything that we do. And how do we all come together to collectively start addressing that need in a way that actually makes us all better uh, and well and happy and moves out of the spirit of competition and into the spirit of, you know, how do we capture, you know, what's really great about the work that we're doing. So a bit of a pot shot there, but uh, that led me to doing quite a lot of work in Latin America uh, with yes, El Projects. Me. Uh, and really interested in seeing how, you know, organizations, uh, two profound moments, one working in an orphanage in, um, oh, sorry, not an orphanage, uh, a school's education program, actually, uh, mm -hmm. in, in Mumbai, uh, in India, uh, in wow. which, which was run by a group of Catholic nuns, and really interesting looking at how they sort of kept adding all the little pieces. So mm -hmm. how do you get kids from this slum in Mumbai 
uh, into the existing education system because the existing education system is good. So how do you just get them into it? Yeah. Okay. Now what are the other pieces that you need to do? How do they concentrate in school? Well, you know, has everybody got breakfast? How do we make sure everybody's got a uniform? Who helps them with their homework? All those little pieces and that sort of incremental approach to social change. And then looking at that really interestingly working uh, with the Fundación Azteca in in Mexico, uh, one of the largest Sistema-based programs in the world, um, really looking at how they took an approach to both musical creativity and musical progression in their young people, but again, in the same state of thinking, actually, what do we need to create great global citizens? Because, you know, the... 100,000 children served by Fundación Azteca a year are not all going to be professional musicians, but they most certainly are going to be citizens. And how do we, you know, how do we make sure they're playing football and they have a snack and they're doing their homework and they're thinking about their lives as a bigger space around them and music is the vehicle by which they did that. And those, those things really led me to think, okay, it's time to start exploring this passion much more committedly uh, and and putting my, uh, I guess, my work where my mouth is uh, and yeah. swapping sides and moving into sort of executive management in the, in the culture sector. So Amazing. And can you give the list, like in case our listeners haven't uh, come across live music now, can you give us a bit of a taste of maybe some of the sorts of activities or projects that live music now provides? Yeah. So, well, sure. Absolutely. Uh, Live Music Now has been around a while. Uh, We were founded in 1977 by Yehudi Menuhin, Mm -hmm. uh, the the violinist, uh, who had actually done a series of performances with the composer Benjamin Britten uh, for returning prisoners of war. Mm. And he always said they were the most profound performances that he gave in his career. So in the 70s, and this was really groundbreaking at that time, we were the only organization that was uh, set up to do that at that time. He said, how do we take music to those people who could benefit from it the most, but have the least opportunity to access it? Whether that's in a hospital, it's in a prison, it's in a care home. How do we do those things? And also, how do we get all of these young musicians? And at the time we were totally Western classical. How do we get all these young musicians leaving conservatoires to get more performance experience. Uh, and Nina, you know this well, uh, you know, people will tell you what they think in spaces. <laughs> uh, <laughs> outside of concerts halls, uh, yes, you know, your audience is there, they're gonna, they'll give you feedback in the moment. <laughs> and and many would, even in the 70s, thought, you know, this is, this is tremendous because actually this is reality. This is what music should be. It's about sharing. It's about connection. It's about using this incredible connection piece of music to draw out the things in our lives that are important. So fast forward, I guess, 46 years. Live Music Now covers England, Northern Ireland and Wales. We have a sister organization in Scotland, Live Music Now Scotland. We work with around 350 professional musicians a year. Uh, and we work in particular with disabled children and young people in special schools uh, and with adults in uh, what we would term creative health settings. So whether that's in uh, adult social care, so in care homes, uh, in the community or in hospitals or hospices. And we also have a particular focus on working with uh, the workforces in those spaces. So working with uh, carers, working with hospital staff, working with teachers. Uh, And we've also been doing quite a lot of work lately 
um, with Early Years and Families. We deliver the Lullaby mm-hmm. Project in partnership with Carnegie Hall, oh. uh, which is really, really lovely work. There's quite a lot of that work going on, particularly in Wales. Um, and uh, we're actually really, really fortunate uh, this year. We won the People's Projects in oh. Wales to fund some Excellent. lullaby projects, which is utterly delightful. Um <laughs> So, and our musicians do, I think you would recognize the practice very much, Nina. I think from our conversations, we are very much kindred spirits in the way that we like to work. Very much person-led, very much. It might look like an engaging and participatory concert all the way through to to songwriting or music creating, uh, everything in between, um, from micro songs, which are tiny snippets of songs Mm -hmm. or tiny snippets of music uh, that we can use with, you know, profound uh, children with profound and complex needs or yep. you know adults in, in care settings that are you know have are no longer verbal that kind of thing all the way through to you know writing huge uh, big pieces and, and and songs that go you know end up being professionally recorded mm. so yeah that's that's sort of a brief overview of what live music now does which is an enormous spectrum of activities and projects that's so extraordinary um and the yeah that that it continues to expand and develop is momentously inspiring and hopefully in years to come we'll still be talking about these things i can't i can't wait to get involved it's such a a, a brilliant a brilliant company um so well, let's in years to come just to jump in on you there go on in years to come hopefully my 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 vision and i think you and i would share that that in years to come we'll still be talking about them because every single person in this country will have access exactly. to that life-giving, life-affirming power of music, uh, yeah. wherever they are in their lives, whenever they need it. Mm-hmm. That's the mission. And it's so achievable. Speaking to other practitioners as well, sometimes it can we can, not even jaded exactly, but just start to feel like, why is this still, why are we still fighting the fight? It's like, no, no, we'll get there. It is... And, and there is such progress as well, and particularly around um, music and dementia. I think there is enormous yes. leaps and strides, particularly uh, with the coverage in our media. So, you know, we've had the research for decades. Now we're just going to get the legislation in place. We'll get there. Well, thank you, Janet, for that excellent introduction and uh, a bit of a peek into your your backstory. Let's look even further. I would love to hear about perhaps a musical memory that is meaningful to you. I'm sure that you have, my goodness, inordinate number of those. But something that's uh, a, a moment where some meaningful music helped you. It might have been uh, any of these could be, you know, music you've performed, music you've taught or you grew up with or, or things that you're just discovering now. But a musical memory. I think there's a couple uh, that, that that come to mind. Um, there's definitely one. Um, as part of sort of my career, I also produced uh, opera hmm. and uh, with a company that I was running uh, with a tenor a uh, friend and colleague of mine, uh, Brian Smith Walters, uh, Elemental Opera, we produced with the uh, Nottingham Symphony Orchestra, uh, Peter Grimes. Oh, wow. And I remember sitting, uh, I sang Ellen Orford, Brian uh, was Grimes, and I remember being in the performance and listening to the orchestra play the C interludes was really quite emotional because... This was an extremely high level 
I would you would say a semi-pro orchestra, so some professional players in it, mm-hmm. but also some very high-level amateurs um, that were playing in this orchestra. And something like Peter Grimes is not really within the gift of most uh, sort of pro-am orchestras, just because of the forces required mm. to you know to pull together that many singers um, and to be able to put it on and do all that thing. So it's not necessarily an experience that you as a musician who isn't doing this, you know, professionally for a major symphony orchestra is going to get the, or an opera company is going to get the opportunity to do. And the seer interludes are very commonly played by orchestras as a sort of orchestral piece in a concert. Hmm. But there was something just really special and magical about hearing them play these pieces that they knew already, but finally understood in the context Hmm. of this piece of music Hmm. and this wider operatic piece of music. And feeling really both moved, uh, the playing was stunning, really moved about that, but also really proud of the fact Mm -hmm. that our work had meant that collectively we were all creating this incredible piece of music together. And that for people who wouldn't normally have the access really to be able to play something like this in a performance, we're able to do that because, you know, we just put a little work in and made it happen. And, mm. and you know, their their admin team and the conductor, Mark Heron, you know, did a huge amount of work to make that happen as well. But it was one of those moments where you just suddenly, you felt the community of music mm. come together and this, in, this sort of piece of both great music and connection of people and access and all of those things come together in in one space. I think Gosh. that is um, That's so definitely a... A powerful memory. Yes. Oh my, I, I, and it's so evocative as well. I've had experiences like that um, in my own career where perhaps it was music that I'd written, that I'd been used to performing solo or in small, you know, duo settings, that when you come to record them, you suddenly hear the full interpretation or one full interpretation of that, what you think you have, you know, a really good idea of what that song means until you hear everybody language inform it and then it takes on its own new life and like it's always extremely moving and surprising and there's such a a beautiful um like absolute you know lottery of options that might occur in that situation uh and and also the peter grimes the the britain my goodness that's some stunning that's some stunning music to be sharing in that way how beautiful and powerful that is. Well, I, I love that. What a great musical memory. Um, would you like to discuss a musical tool? Because I'd love to hear what um, your, firstly, your vocal instrument, that tool, as well as maybe, you know, how you engage with your violin. That Anything you might have to say about that would be fascinating, I think. Well, I think the first thing to remember is that a musical tool, I guess, whether it's an external instrument like a violin or a piano or a flute or your own body is, is an intrinsic part of who we are as human beings. Uh, so I also uh, have kept up a big teaching practice. Uh, and if any of my students are listening to this, they'll be laughing heartily <laughs> in, in a moment. Um, but really understanding that musicians are athletes. Mm. Uh, and that our bodies really only work in one way. 
and just because we're about to sing something doesn't mean that, you know, the lungs suddenly transform into new things that do things in different ways. Um, and I guess my, my point with this always is that to know your music is to know yourself. Uh, and to understand what that means for you as a person. And I think that is really an incredible thing to think about how music connects you more deeply with your own self, mm. uh, whether that's about biofeedback and understanding, you know, as a singer, exactly what your muscles do and, and when they're doing them and, you know, continuous repetitive practice, or whether that's understanding how, you know, the drawing of a bow or the placing of horsehair on a metal string with some tree sap in the middle, which is the reality <laughs> of what a violin is, yeah. you know, can create some of the most exquisite sounds mm. uh, and being able to experiment in play and that. So I guess my musical tool would probably be play. Mm. Try things out. See what happens. It is going to go horrifyingly wrong on occasion. That's all right. <laughs> you're gonna exactly. Go, that was not my finest work. Uh, <laughs> if you're a violin student under the age of 18, you will have definitely heard the words, well, that was tragic. Um, let's try that again. Uh, usually a, being applied to a, a scale of some kind, I sure. would say. Um, but, you know, I think it's so important. We We approach music as this deeply studious thing that we have to do. And yes, okay, I spent eight, well, seven years at a major conservatoire uh, with, a, you know, an, an opera program afterwards. I've spent, you know, a very significant chunk of my life in a practice room uh, working on the tiniest minutia. And you mm. can drive the love out of music in seconds if all you are <laughs> doing focused on tiny bits of technique. So my musical tool would be play, try things, experiment, play, get them wrong, laugh about it, do it again. Yeah. There are no wrong answers. Music is just fundamentally communication. We're just talking to one another yeah. in a slightly more uh, melodious way. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that freedom, I, I'm always sort of seem to be going on about the idea of um, you don't need permission to be playful. And particularly as soon as we become adults, there seems to be such social pressure to, well, I mean, you're told to shut up and pipe down throughout, you know, uh, school or, you know, from being rambunctious or noisy or whatever. But certainly once adulthood sets in, there's almost like you give up those childhood things and play apparently is one of them. And trying to like offer play back to people as a concept of like, oh no, you didn't need to put this down and and it's it's still part of your you know toolkit of of joy please have it back <laughs> that seems to be like a, an, an endless project but also so meaningful as soon as a person does choose to be playful and does choose to be curious about what's possible and 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 perhaps part of that is you know letting go of self judgment and all of those you know structures that we are surrounded by that seem to you know as if as if you can delineate apart from like just just play just explore and just have a good time particularly you know we're very particularly interested in how music helps obviously on this podcast but uh, yeah, just to be playful and creative, whether that's musical or not, is so powerfully uh, good for us. 
from a, you know, on a cellular level. Um, I love that. I love that play is your tool. Let's, in fact, play our own cells. We're going to pick up the musical idoscope now. So uh, if you are an avid listener to Music Helps, you'll know what this tool is. So this is our essentially wheel of fortune. Um, it has lots of categories on it and it's very colourful. This Certainly this prototype is anyway. Um, and we have the variety of different ways we can uh, engage somebody in a conversation about music, in an exploration of it, in a journey. Uh, and this is one tool and way we can do that. So Janet, I am going to spin it, and wherever it lands, uh, we will see what that means to you. All right, here we go. Pew. It has landed on songs you like. Oh. oh. Well, songs I like. No, you say this to a singer, obviously, so, you know. There's, got there's a few. vast, <laughs> vast range. Songs you like um, today. And I'll give you a hint into my, uh, an insight into my deeply vast range of uh, musical loves. Um, I think the greatest song ever composed is Gustav Mahler's uh, Ich bin der Welt abhanden gekommen from Ooh. the Rookert leader. I'm going to have to get uh, you to email is, me. <laughs> I will. It's just the most stunning piece. Uh, and it ends with the words, I live alone in my love, in my life, in my song. Ooh. And it is just the most incredible piece of music. Um, but on the opposite side of that, um, I'm a deep and abiding fan of the Canadian rock band Nickelback. Yay! Uh, so you'll also catch me singing along to all sorts nice. of things. Uh, a child of 90s rock, I yeah. think, is, uh, is, is where we are. Um, Love it. Or uh, I think also, you know, I think so much of songs, I, I, we talk a lot about musical identity at Live Music Now, mm. uh, that sort of landscape of music that makes up the soundtrack of our lives. And I think when you think about songs, you often think about sort of soundtracks and, you know, the your musical identity is made up of, you know, the song that was playing outside the pub on the night that you, you know, you finally met your partner or you broke up with your first yeah. partner. Uh, you know, the song that, you know, was playing in the on the radio the first time you ever, you know, you ever got behind the wheel of a car or that was, you know, happened to be on auto shuffle, you know, when you were traveling somewhere. Yeah. Uh, all the way through to obviously as, as professional musicians, you know, the, the pieces that we love that we dedicated our lives to learning and performing and, and sharing with other people. And, you know, so, you know, there's other things in my, I guess, my musical identity, like the country singer Ian Tyson, uh, Navajo Rug is, a, you know, a, I have many memories of this, this song and it instantaneously brings me back to growing up in the prairies in Canada uh, and seeing, you know, the Chinook winds come in off the mountains and, oh, wow. and the light in a certain way. And, you know, all the way through to, you know, the songs that I've performed as a musician, mm. the songs that I teach to students mm. uh, and things that, you know, that you find and surprise you and delight you and, and bring you joy. I'm a huge fan of the composer Ronaldo Hahn. Uh, and, you know, absolutely uh, working with a student right now on his, 
amazing piece, Trois Jours de Vendange, which is a song about um, a young man who goes to market and meets this lovely young woman uh, dancing along on the first day. And then on the next day he goes to market, he meets her ghost walking past him. And on the third day, he meets her coffin uh, with a double fringe, which means that she was pregnant and died. Uh, And and the whole end of this song is this most incredible evocation of the of the uh, the church bells ringing in the distance and there's the most wonderful line and it says and the wine had too much grape <laughs> and Good so Lord. all of these things where you just find i think in songs that we like why do we like songs because there's something in them often songs lyrics it's something that hooks into us but sometimes it's a piece of melody mm. there's something in that that just hooks into our experience of being human, mm-hmm. the things that we're going through in our lives. I mean, we've been talking about meaningful music and well-being, mm-hmm. you know, the, the songs that we put on when we want to feel good, the songs that we put on when we want to comfort ourselves because we feel bad. Yeah, uh, I was running a joke for a while that I apparently only ever made a Spotify playlist when I was, <laughs> when I was either annoyed or <laughs> or feeling a little low because yeah. you know we're like I need some need slightly it. more upbeat music on my Spotify here like I need to put some effort into that you know all the way through to the music that we used to you know I'm a I'm a triathlete and I you know definitely use music to motivate myself totally. to get out the door and you know I'll admit to far more chart 40 hits on that run list than <laughs> I, I would in my normal uh, rotation so I think you know songs that we like we like them because they mean something to us mm. and they either are representative and evocative of, of a place that we are in a point in time in our lives mm-hmm. or because they just happen to connect with us in a, in a way that means something to us. Absolutely. I remember the moment when, so I, I got into Led Zeppelin as a teenager and the moment when I discovered Ramble On was about Lord of the Rings and I just like lost my mind because the Lord of the Rings was like my childhood self and I was like oh hang on these two things I love have fused and made a really incredible song I can't handle it I can't listen to it enough and and it remains to this day like one of my absolutely favorite songs there's like and the meaning in that is that sort of crazy uh alchemy when two like you know when two two different groups of your friends meet and you they hang out in front of you it's like can't my brain can't handle that i love it i absolutely love it but i've got cognitive dissonance around what's happening in front of my eyes because these are two worlds merging it's like the musical equivalent of that was so satisfying but you're right it is the meaning behind it what does it mean to us because even when something is painful it'll the the meaning will be something beautiful there'll be some beauty and some learning in that i love it let's spin again oh genres and styles I wrote my master's dissertation on the the music of Gustav Mahler. Nice. Uh, so I guess late, <laughs> late German romantic composers yeah. uh, for 100, please, Alex, uh, <laughs> is uh, definitely a particular area of um, you know, music that really means something to me. When did um, you discover that 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 was your favorite music? Probably in my late teens. And then 
through music college, you know, being exposed to and exploring much more of this music um, and really digging into it and understanding its sort of roots in philosophy and mm-hmm. uh, and the great German philosophers. Mm-hmm. I mean, to, to study Gustav Mahler in depth means you need to have a working knowledge of Kant, Hegel, Schopenhauer, Nietzsche. Right. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not a small troll <laughs> for the human, <laughs> human psyche at all. No. Uh, you know, and... Um, also a, a huge fan of of Bach uh, and a lot of I am German by heritage mm. uh, so uh, interestingly definitely I'm drawn to sort of the Germanic tradition yeah I'm sort of other German composers like Telemann that kind of thing mm-hmm. um deeply love Shostakovich symphonies mm. something so evocative about music being a reflection of our time. Mm. and a mirror to the society in which we live and and you know and and the creating these incredible pieces of resistance and and complexity and mm-hmm. you know anguish and pain and exile and anger and all of these and beauty uh, you know threaded through all of that um so yeah definitely uh classical music is a is a big western classical music is a big thing for me uh, you know but I am a western classical musician mm-hmm. uh but uh, trad fiddle music too. I mean, tra- traditional music. My, as I mentioned, my brother's a fiddle player. He actually uh, has a band called the Bookends who've just been nominated for uh, Folk Album of the Year in Canada. Oh, cool. Uh, yeah, it's pretty awesome. For a, a, a recording they just did uh, with the Stratford Symphony Orchestra. Uh, so they did a lovely piece of, uh, well, lovely set of concerts with the Stratford Symphony Orchestra and um, they were, you know, playing all their music alongside and these lovely arrangements. Mm. Uh, including, I think, think one of the lord of the rings uh, pieces from the movie soundtrack so um sorry, i'll send that off to you, you know, <laughs> yes, please. but you know growing up in that sort of traditional fiddle world you know i absolutely love you know irish and scottish uh celtic music um Amazing. really uh you know deep love for old time and bluegrass uh all of that kind of mm. uh, music so that's that you know you'll find that very regularly lots of folk artists in my rotation uh and as i said earlier you know uh, definitely a child of the 90s <laughs> you know i grew up in the land when you know nirvana nickelback and you know rem and mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> all the sort of alternative well now probably mainstream rock bands uh mm-hmm. were out so that is definitely a thing for me and you know to some extent um Music from music from other cultures. I mean, I as I mentioned, I spent a fair amount of time in, in Latin America. Yes, I, I still have not found an abiding passion for reggaeton, uh, <laughs> but there's definitely uh, quite a few Latin pop hits uh, <laughs> living living in my playlist. And uh, I also have a not so secret penchant for um, new melodic death metal. Oh, okay. So, and actually, I taught A-level music for a year and um, at a, a sixth form in, in Stockport. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I ran the Heavy Metal Music Appreciation Society, uh, which was the most attended complimentary studies elective at the school. I bet it was. Uh, <laughs> and it comprised of about 100 kids sitting in the hall with the massive concert speakers out flaring out that week's topic, which would be heavy metal and whatever, politics, religion, cool. you know, ethics, 
uh, and then we'd sit and debate the we'd sit and debate the the topics that came up in the lyrics of these bands, yeah. uh, discuss the music. Everybody got to get band of the you know you got to vote for band of the week, and we listened to you know we'd always listen to the seventh track on the album because a friend of mine oh. was a music critic, and he always used to say, "Yeah, I always start an album, finish it, and listen to the seventh track, and that's how I uh, how I evaluate the albums." Oh. So I had well, let's listen to the seventh track on every album that we get pointed out and see what that's like. Um, so this was hilarious. There was even touch tag wall of death that was played as a sort of exercise warm up until um, somebody <laughs> actually discovered somebody else. And we had to stop that. Um, but I think that was one of my favorite moments as a teacher because one of our uh, students came up to me and said, miss, I really like HMA. It's like ethics, but I actually want to go. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, doesn't that just illustrate the power of music? We can yeah. get into those tough topics and you'll also have a good time. That's amazing. Yeah. Oh, I love it. The wisdom of youth as well. Genius. Okay, let's spin one more time. I'm damned if it's not going to land on regions and places. Come on. Where is it? Oh, it did. Did you look at that? On the cusp. <laughs> Yeah, it's, just, it's just. on the cusp of regions and places or eras and decades. You can take. Well, break. we've heard lots about eras and decades. Yeah, I think everyone's can... worked out that I'm on. solid on the 1880s, is there... 1890s, and the <laughs> 1990s. Is there a part of the world that is musically meaningful for you? You don't have to. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and you're <laughs> hoping that I'm going to say Latin America. And the answer to that is, well, yes, but no. But it um, could also be Germany by the sounds of it. The most powerful musical place that I have ever been to in my life is Snape Maltings in Aldeburgh. I did not see that coming. Uh, and this is right. not a shout out to our, well, I mean, of course it's a shout out to our friends at Britain Peers Arts, uh, but I was a Britain Peers young artist. And that meant that we got to spend some weeks in, in Aldeburgh. Wow. In Suffolk. And yeah. Being in a practice room and looking out over the sort of the marshes mm. and the lights a little different there. And I was already a big fan of, of Britain. And, you know, you would expect that from someone who's a huge fan of Mahler. There, you know, there's a lot of sort of mm -hmm. uh, links and, and connections in that mix. And we were actually the first year that I went, we were singing Mahler Strauss. So we were working on the songs of Mahler and Strauss. Mm -hmm. So things that I'm deeply, uh, deeply connected to. And I was there with my duo partner, uh, Mikhail Shileyev, the uh, concert pianist. And I just remember thinking, this is just the most inspiring place because there's something in this air about mm. how you can just focus. It's quiet. It's still, you can create music. And, you know, the first time I walked out on that shingle beach and seeing the light and finally understanding Grimes, like mm. finally understanding this opera that I loved mm. and going into the Red House and seeing Britain's scores uh, and being able to pull notes out of the scores into my own. And my Whoa. teacher had studied with Peter Pierce and Britain. So I had already, as uh, so a Barbara, both of them studied with, with Peter Pierce and I had already comments directly from Britain in scores of music that I'd sung of his. Mm. And that was just this most incredible experience of being able to just focus, find stillness in the music, understand it, dig through it and do those things. Mm. I have had similar experiences in other places. Yes, in Latin America, 
you know, working, doing, you know, phenomenal pieces of work, more as a teacher in that space, you know, working with young people uh, in making music together. Uh, and obviously there's always, there's always concerts, there's always moments, you know, one of my favorite things as a professional performer is working with choral societies mm. uh, in the UK, because these are people who are deeply passionate about making music together. And it means something to them because it's their community. Mm-hmm. It's something they go to every single week. And you have such a privilege as a soloist because you're there by the, the goodness of those, those people who are coming together. It's literally their fees that they're, they're, they're subs that are paying your fee as a, as a, as a soloist. Mm-hmm. Um, and being able to go and work with them on something that they have spent so much time working on and they have invested so much of themselves and they've invited all their friends and family to come and watch this. And you are creating something with them and you're there literally to add like sprinkles on top of the cake Mm. um, to get, put these solos in, to pull it together, you know, and just some really amazing moments. So, you know, I can think of it, you know, in Shrewsbury Abbey, we sang the kingdom uh, you know, I've been back to Shrewsbury Choral a, a couple of times in the wonderful Choral Society. And uh, we did Elgar's The Kingdom. And this was a piece that I had always wanted to sing. And I finally got the call to come sing it. And there's the big soprano aria, The Sun Goeth Down. And it was just the most mm. incredible moment inside the cathedral. It was just utter, well, the abbey, just utter stillness uh, from everywhere. And the orchestra's a beautiful big uh, Elgar, El- Elgar orchestra sat behind and was just just one of those moments where, you know, the the dust hangs still in the air, mm. <laughs> you know, and and everyone is just in this collective space together. Um, so I think that's it. And probably if you ask me what my favorite musical space is to be in, it's on the stage, in the performance space, in that moment, in that stillness, mm. in that moment where you and the audience and all the other musicians are just totally connected to one another for that brief few minutes you have a shared experience uh, in that space. And that can happen anywhere in the world. Mm. Uh, it can happen in a field in the backyard of a school in Mexico. Uh, it can happen on the stage of the Wigmore Hall. You know, those are, we can make, we can make music and communities really where, wherever we are. It's that beautiful, tender crucible of that moment. Yeah, that's amazing. Also, I'd not heard of snake malting, so I looked it up and it looks amazing. What what an extraordinary what an extraordinary set of experiences you've uh, you had so far as well, Janet. Amazing. My goodness. Well, thank you for spinning the musical eidoscope with us and for sharing some of your amazing tales. I feel like I could do a whole nother episode with you. We'll have to have you come back on. Um are there any signposts you'd like to put up for our listener so perhaps to live music now or uh, your work or things that you think people would be interested in checking out yeah I mean live music now you can find out much more about the work that we do at www.livemusicnow.org.uk you'll find on there all sorts of uh, news stories and, and case studies about some of the work that we do uh and also we are of course on all on all social media channels um the particularly uh, lovely story that's just happened. Two of our musicians just walked the whole of the Welsh coastal path, oh. all 870 miles, <sighs> performing w- almost every night, uh, 45 gigs in 60 days, just wild, uh, Chris and Seth. 
uh, of Philkin's Drift and Freddie, their their friend and and roadie and uh, and sound guy and <sighs> hiking buddy and and everything. Um, wow! And they were doing that for fundraising for Live Music Now, so they uh, were really really delighted that that they did oh this God, incredible tour with the the privilege of going out and and walking a chunk of the path in Pembrokeshire with them. Uh, and then I would encourage everybody to, I guess connect with the local music that's going on around them. Uh, you know, there's lots of signposting that I can send over. There are phenomenal organizations nationally doing this work. You're one of them. We're one of them. There's lots of other partners around the country and really happy to mm. share out links uh, to some of that work. And then also, I, I think a shout out to a lot of our partners in this sector, you know, the National Care Forum, uh, the National Activity Providers Association, NAPA, uh, you know, that do this really, that really help to hold the fabric of the people supporting the people that we support yeah. uh, together. And they have a lot of uh, great musical toolkits available to them um, and things that are, you know, more than just music that sits in those spaces. But yeah, happy to send over some links, but okay. to throw all things live music now, of course, just, you know, come to our website and, uh, and come see what we do. Well, thank you so, so much for joining us today, Janet. It's absolutely epic to speak to you. I can't wait to do it again. Um, and thanks to our listener for listening today as well. If you want to hear more from Music Helps, show your support by all the usual things that perhaps you don't yet do. You could like, rate, review or subscribe to this podcast. The subscribing really makes a massive difference to us and helps pump the old podcast up the algorithms in whichever podcast provider you're with so if you want to check out more of musical walkabout shenanigans follow us at at musical walkabout on facebook instagram twitter linkedin and youtube um, and to get involved with our music help staff training or for more information on the musical walkabout ethos you can simply visit our website musicalwalkabout.com and book in a free introductory chat with me so we can explore different ways that we can support you to bring more musical solutions to your working environment or your home environment or into uh, you know whatever institution you find yourself in we love to hear from our listeners so please leave a comment and let us know how music helps you it might inspire more conversations it might inspire our next guest who knows uh, and if you want to play it forward as we say please share this podcast with a friend or music buddy and join us next time to discover more ways that music helps thanks everyone and toodles <laughs> All content discussed on Music Helps is for educational purposes only and expresses the individual opinions of Nina Clark and Musical Walkabout and should not be construed as personalised medical advice. By listening to this podcast, you agree not to use this podcast to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others. Consult your GP for any medical issues you may be experiencing. This entire disclaimer also applies to any and all guests and contributors on the Music Helps podcast.